Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Andrew Parry, Head of Sustainable Investment at Newton Investment Management. This conversation is a unique one. It looks at ESG from a very much a critical way as to the issues and challenges alongside implementation of ESG, the definitions of ESG alongside social norms, alongside the new regulation changes that are coming alongside stakeholder management and the ruling by the Department of Labor around the still the primacy around fiduciary duty. I hope you enjoy this conversation. How do you see ESG in this world of COVID? How has it changed or evolved in the last few months? Well, it's been quite a dramatic transformation in many ways. Yes over the course of 2020 and it's coming in in a multiple multiple different ways it's one of the most obvious is the huge inflows that we're seeing around the world you know we've had record inflows into esg labeled or sustainable labeled uh, investment portfolios in fixed income as well as as, as equity so that, so that 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 in itself is amazing given the outflows from many traditional uh, funds, particularly in the in the earlier part of the year. Now, behind that is a great emphasis on climate. So we are beginning to see particularly asset owners emphasize their climate objectives in either uh, active or passive strategies, many of them with an ESG or sustainable type label tilted. So that, that that's something that really has accelerated. I think the asset owner community backed by the sort of private wealth uh, in area, have really sort of finally fully embraced a view on climate change and are beginning to, to put that in, in into action. Also, you have to think about what ESG is. And, you know, I sometimes have to remind myself to, to spell it out a bit more. It sounds really, really trite to say it's environmental, social and governance. But I think when we're talking about this, particularly to a non-professional audience, it's really important to actually spell out what ESG is, because it's not some abstract acronym. It actually stands for some really incredibly important issues. And what I was going to say was that it's the social dimension that has really begun to be of, of interest to particularly asset owners over the course of this year. You know, first and foremost, you know, COVID has been a, a human crisis, both for the health and the, you know, the loss of life. Uh, that it, it's, it's visited upon us, but also the social consequences of the economic fallout uh, that's going to endure and linger for, for, for many years with unemployment. So, and I think that's really sharpened the focus on S, which within the ESG space had always been an area that we, we probably more struggled on because it's a, it's a harder area to define, it's a harder area to, to get data on. So if COVID has done one thing, it's about advancing the cause of air social in the debate and discussions on how to integrate ESG into an investment approach. It's interesting you say that because if I look through most of the portfolios of of ESG labelled portfolios, they're very much filled with tech stocks. Uh, And these tech stocks have been the ones that have actually benefited the most through COVID. 
as traditional retail, as traditional real estate infrastructure have all been hit quite hard. It's the tech stocks that have done quite well. So is, is ESG getting a bit of a, a wind um, beneath its sails in terms of gaining from the transformation of the economy due to COVID? Yes, and I think that transformation was one that was going on already. Uh, COVID, for some people, is about to tilt the world on its axis and was going to usher in a new normal. However, in practical reality, in the short term, it's accelerated trends that were there already. Uh, we've seen you know, the concentration of market capitalization in the tech stock grow. Their businesses have generally thrived over this period. So it's given that consolidation of market share, given the market share gains, as we've all learned to, to work from home. Now, that's great from a pure financial return performance perspective, but I think it does begin to raise some specters over the longer term. You know, it does raise worries about over-concentration of you know, in market share. It, wor- it gives you some worrying concerns about potential monopoly you know these platform companies have an ability to see all the flow in the system so therefore does that give them an unfair advantage are they gaining undue dominance by being able to control that flow because they see it before anybody else and and i do worry a little bit that as we come out of the covid crisis it's going to be what i would call the beating heart of entrepreneurialism the small enterprises, the mom and pop on uh, companies, you know, the, you know, the, the medium-sized companies, the old SME sector, that are going to find it very difficult to gain traction. You know, there's, you know, I think in the US, there was a stat that say nearly 40% of restaurants have already shuttered. Um, so we do then have to think about the role of dominant players in any industry, actually, uh, for in its position in long-term social outcomes. And I, and I think this could be one of the big challenges for ESG over the next decade is actually in the way that maybe a decade ago when the oil uh, or, or fossil fuels dominated the index and we talked about externalities not being internalized, do we now have growing externalities in some of these really very dominant industries, both public and private. You know, some of these is reflected in the private equity market as well. Um, and I think that is going to be a question around the social aspect of ESG over the next decade. What happens with tech? What happens with monopoly and uh, dominance? You know, are we going to actually begin to see governments swing back the other way and enforce antitrust, for example? Well, there's a potential real risk then, you know, for these ESG funds that are significantly tech heavy, you know, as they keep growing and they've got this momentum behind them and more money pours into ESG funds, which then pours into these tech companies. Yes, they become quite large. Then you raise the red flags of of regulators. There could be then a potentially uh, hidden risk or inherent risk in, in these sort of portfolios if, you know, you're not, you're just investing in ESG blindly. Well, these are these are going to be inherent risks in all portfolios, but I do think you make an important point there about ESG and momentum. You know, at the moment, as we see a sort of almost a tsunami of money into the sector, and a significant proportion of it into into passive, there is this danger of a compounding effect of momentum in the in the sort of ESG darling sustainable you know winners that can take the valuations way beyond 
their economic worth. And I do always worry when something becomes fashionable. You know, I've been in the industry 35 years, and it's probably the first time I've been fashionable, that's for sure, that once something becomes fairly ubiquitous and everybody's talking about it, do you then end up uh, stripping it of its utility? If we'd been having this conversation maybe 12 years ago before ESG was really you know, talked about widely, we, we might have been talking about value versus growth and why you never needed to own a growth stock. Uh, and that was the dominant thinking of the time. Yet every year, virtually for 12 years, growth has outperformed value. So, you know, I think the way we have to frame ESG is it's not um, a label, it's not a, an outcome in itself. Sustainability is, that's what we're trying to achieve, a sustainable, robust system that balances economic growth with social consequences and operating with environmental boundaries. But with ESG, I think very much it, it's an input into the decision-making. It's about business models, the risks, the opportunities. And these are inputs that are part of the rich mosaic of having the full picture. You know, ESG characteristics don't change on a second-by-second -second basis, but prices do. And of course, we have to reflect that valuation, business models, cash flow, competitor analysis, where in the value chain is value accruing, all these factors still have to be assimilated into share prices. And I do worry that at times people, as people rush to get a shiny ESG label, if they're looking at just the label and the score and not enough about the other variables that influence business, that we could end up with outcomes that uh, that disappoint people. So put it another way, it's not that ESG uh, outperforms, it's that not integrating ESG probably hinders your ability to outperform. So, you know, I think we need to be careful about the nuances of how this is, uh, how it's presented. You know, it comes back to my point, it's not an abstract acronym. It does not exist on its own as an independent entity. It's an input, uh, uh, not an output. As so much flow chases ESG, again, labelled companies, is there also, would you feel, potentially a capacity constraint for the types of companies that people really want to get to? You know, if you're thinking about ESG as an asset allocator and you say, well, I want the best companies, you know, is there enough capacity out there for them to allocate to the best companies out there or do they need to sort of drop down the levels of ESG and then be more of an advocate um, and try and push for for better performance and and better behaviour of of these companies. Well, look, ESG is uh, our influences on all companies, large and small, across all sectors, and they have different. It has different levels of materiality across environmental, social, and governance in different regions, different industries, etc. So it's there as an influence uh, uh, for for all businesses. So I don't think in that sense it is capacity constrained. Now, if you're actually going to be very prescriptive about it and narrow it down, say, to just solution providers, then yes, you do end up limiting your choice and you're already into an area where many of the sort of what would be deemed as solution providers are trading on very rich valuations. So, you know, that aspect of it does worry me. I, when, when I talk to companies, it's really interesting because you know, companies are, are absolutely intrigued by ESG and they want to know how they remain relevant. How do they get people continuing to invest in their shares? Uh, and it's, it's really interesting to see how different companies respond. You know, I had one major fossil fuel company ask me, how do we optimize our ESG score? 
And, you know, you're trying to say to them, that's not what it's about. It's about your behaviors and your purpose and how you're managing the risks and the transition in your business. If you think it's just about a score as a corporation, then you're just putting greenwashing on, on the front of your, your business without actually changing your allocation patterns. So in that conversation, and it's always our conversations as, you know, with companies, it's about what the companies are doing. This is, this is probably the most important way to think about it. it as to paraphrase the old Bill Clinton elections slogan, it's the company's stupid. These are the people allocating all the different forms of capital, human, social, natural, financial, intellectual relationships, etc., to build resilient and relevant businesses that will endure over time. They're having to hire and sort of sadly fire people at the moment. They're dealing with complex regulations. They might have you know, 60, 70,000 companies in, as primary suppliers in their supply chain. They are big, complex businesses. So that's where it's really important is actually try to get into the mindset of how companies are integrating sustainable practices into their operations. What, how do they understand the notion of what their purpose is? Because that's the only way that you can make it real. And that takes it away from a score or a label to actually understand what they're really doing with capital and what it means to their business. And going back to your first question about ESG and how it's changed, I think what's really suddenly changed is companies are recognizing that the world is in an accelerating period of transitions, you know, whether it be in technology, in health, in society, in geopolitics, in global trade, et cetera. And that's challenging the relevancy of their, their business. And for me, that's why when you have uh, more private conversations with companies, I, that's why I believe they're beginning to look at stakeholder approaches because they're beginning to realize that just the focus on the primacy of the shareholder could mean that they become stranded, that their, their businesses become, don't become relevant. And I think that stakeholder mentality is probably the bit that I'm the most optimistic on as long as then shareholders are called into account uh, on their claims of being stakeholder orientated. I'm curious on your thoughts around that stakeholder management piece. You gave the example of the of the oil company there uh, and, and trying to sort of think about how can they improve their rating. And I guess in their mindset, they feel that if you have a higher rating that you'll end up falling into maybe new passive ESG funds that will then drive more money into their stocks and, and help help their valuation. But is there now a potential situation that if companies feel that they can't do enough to get their ESG scores, that maybe it's better for them to be private and that there's maybe less scrutiny for them if they're private rather than on the listed markets? Um, and undoubtedly, we've seen that in some challenged areas, you know, increasingly in areas like coal, where, you know, there's a real investor a program heaped on anything to do with coal, and, uh, and we have seen that um, that shift. And I think sometimes you you see that lead to very poor uh, local environmental and even social outcomes. You know, so look at some of the uh, actions in, in private companies in, in West Virginia. It uh, it, it looks like an, uh, an environmental disaster there. Um, and and I think that that's one of the other challenges with this is that you know many companies are actually disposing of uh, activities which are seen as being negative whether it be oil and gas or coal or 
other uh, activities like that. But if they're not being wound down, but they're going to a private ownership, then they go into a shadowy world with less accountability, less governance. And, you know, that's maybe good for the cor listed corporate entity in that it's removed, if you like, an ESG discount from being associated with an activity that has maybe negative environmental uh, consequences through climate change. But if that business that they have disposed of continues to exist and with less scrutiny, um, then you actually haven't changed anything. You just, you know, it, 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 there's a danger that it becomes, you know, about virtue rather than the practical necessity to create a more sustainable system. So, yes, I think you, you, th there are sometimes these consequences uh, of, you know, in our desire to look good and to change the system that maybe we don't always get the actions um, that we want if they go from public to private and fall out of uh, out of view. It's interesting you mentioned about virtue there, and one of the things that comes to mind, particularly in the Australian marketplace, is the number of funds talking about lower and lower carbon uh, footprint in their portfolio. When I hear that, it seems like the easy choice, particularly as the number of companies in the in the indices and the value of these companies in the indices is getting lower and lower, and the actual you know, relevance to your total portfolio is getting smaller. So that's an easy way to win. Curious on your thoughts around how ESG gets sort of taken advantage of and people almost playing with the label to try and show that they're doing the right thing. But then as we go into the more deeper issues around social, that they're sort of discounted. The problem with the label and methodologies, particularly when they come, you know, the, is that they can be gamed. It's very easy once you know a methodology to for creating, you know, what looks good, then you can just emphasize, overemphasize the things that score well and underemphasize those things that score poorly. You know, a lot of people in the early days of ESG, as a result of that, were very surprised when they opened up their ESG fund as individual, you know, individual investors to find tobacco because tobacco stocks score well on ESG. And that was sort of contrary to, to you know, to their values or to what they, their expectations. And, and that's why I think it's really important to continue to link ESG to business performance, to business activities, the allocation of capital. You know, if you think about it around TCFD reporting, which is, you know, real big supporters of, and I think is going to help shine the light on things. But if companies, if the oil and gas companies are actually reporting under TCFD through their statutory requirements, but in their management accounts aren't taking account of the climate risks and challenges, then, you know, it, it, it's not going to be really very much help. So it's about what companies are doing, not what they're reporting, and certainly not necessarily what you know, uh, the ESG rating agency is reporting. You know, we, we know that we've had a plenty of examples of high ESG scoring companies recently, you know, Indian coal companies getting incredibly high ESG scores, which seems to be counterintuitive to, to the average investor in a fund. So I, I think that that has to be always at the back of our mind. First and foremost, you know, if you're an active investment manager, then, you know, we still have to produce performance over and above that of the index. And therefore, for us, these are ESG risk management issues. You know, it's about 
uh, we have to assimilate all of that into it. We can't take a position just on virtue. We have to understand what it means for business models, what areas are can be avoided. You know, and, and it does come down to it with many of the, the fossil fuel companies. It's just all, uh, why bother, you know? And now that sounds, you know, uh, really trivializing the problem, but, you know, it's a very different scenario if you're an asset owner, a universal owner, an index manager, to if you're uh, a performance-driven active manager picking 30 to 50 stocks. You know, we're always omitting, you know, it's not divesting. It's just we make a limited number of choices where we're taking into account a whole array of factors. So there is sometimes a, 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 a mixture of language that can be unhelpful. It's very different if you're a universal owner owning the market, the owning beta, where engagement can, you, you, is, is your lever for ch- delivering better outcomes. That can be very different to an active manager where you're using engagement to understand to get a better feedback loop and change behaviors for the specific benefit of your strategy. Now, that they don't have to be misaligned. They can be highly aligned around climate change, but we have to recognize there are different ways that this will get played out in the market. And we still do need price discovery in the market, which is another reason why we can't rely on methodology alone. You know, we have to have that divergence of opinion and thought and action. I can see the the total benefits of the divergence of opinion to to create a market and have market participants going back and forth. But at the same time, when I listen to what you're saying, I think to myself, well, hold on, do we need some sort of an ESG disclosure standard for investment products so that people can actually compare what's what's actually happening across all different asset managers? Um, I think we need better disclosure. I think we need greater transparency. I think all asset managers at the moment are striving to illustrate what good looks like to their clients. I think the key thing is is transparency rather than a standard. Um, you know, if you think about growth, the you know, S&P define growth differently to MSCI, yet they've been around as 80, for 85 years as concepts. So it's not so much about having a standardized disclosure. I think where we need standardized disclosure is at the corporate level. You know, this is something that the EU um, has raised in ESMA, um, because obviously in Europe, the focus on ESG is intense with the EU sustainable taxonomy. There, I think it's about democratizing ESG data. At the moment, access to ESG data is expensive. Uh, the, interp- the, the definitions of it are inconsistent across the big data providers doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing because if it all looks the same, there's no value. But the problem is that there's no standardization at the corporate level. And if you, so three years ago, if you talk to companies, they, they, they really you know, didn't want mandatory reporting around sustainable issues or ESG considerations. Now that they're producing scores sometimes of surveys every month for different, you know, data providers, some for big asset managers, etc. they're beginning to realize that actually a standardization of reporting into the statutory reports might actually be a good thing. They then take control of their data uh, in the sense that it's their data is audited, it's, it's reported, it's standardized. And this is what happens in the accounting industry. Things evolve and change and adapt. And I think that needs to happen before we get really good and consistent standards of reporting at the asset management level. 
you know, so I think sometimes it gets pushed around the wrong way and people say, well, we have to standardize the way that asset managers report. Well, if the data that they're using isn't standardized, isn't fully audited and goes through the filter of a normalizing uh, ESG data provider, how do we actually achieve that? Um, you would be then going back to our problem of, you know, maybe of, of market control. You know, you have people in the middle controlling what good looks like. So I think really the, the one thing I, I, I continue to push for is uh, companies having a standardized set of reporting. You know, when I started over uh, 30 years ago in the industry, we didn't have a cash flow statement. And amazing amount of pushback from having a cash flow statement. Uh, we now have a cash flow statement as a standard part of international accounting. Yeah, accounting standards change to reflect the demand from the end users. And I think that's where I'd like to see the change first is at mandatory reporting. That was the direct example that I, that I thought about, which is around the accounting standards and the cash flow statement. And it's pretty consistent around the world. And when there's any deviations that are there, you have to put it as a note. You know, So likewise with ESG, there could be this similar sort of approach. I guess one of the reasons why people may push back against ESG is that sometimes it's a bit softer. It, it can't be quantified in the same sort of way that the accounting standards could be done. But at least there's a baseline that, that can ask for specific details to be provided. Yeah, well, let's have the debate because if, if you say, Alex, if it's softer at the corporate end, by the time it gets distilled down, manipulated and squirted out at a portfolio, and it's going to become even softer. We can't make it harder uh, at the output level if the input is soft. So that you know, that's you know what I'm reflecting is that we if we have better data in, then we have a better quality of data out. One of the things I wanted to go back to specifically is around that social aspect because it seems as though the social part is still not really being thought about in a deep enough level and one example that i've seen recently is the these uh you know car ride companies that are have a huge amount of contract workers claiming to be very friendly organizations but at the same time their social relationships with their employees is not good likewise a number of the key tech companies hold huge amounts of uh, employees under short-term contracts and I wonder whether that can tick the box of, of being socially responsible uh, as an organization in this new world. Yeah, I think one of the, the ways to, you know, to think about this is that all companies are de facto social enterprises, you know, whether they like it or not. You know, our parent company, BMY Mellon, they employ, I think, 65,000 people. That's the same size as my hometown in, in, in South Wales, you know, and unlike a, a you know a community like a town that we provide economic benefits jobs we provide other benefits like pensions health care um, help with uh, um, preschool you know, uh, child care and issues like that ongoing education and training etc and, and I think actually the more prescient uh, companies are beginning to recognize that role uh, that they have. And that's why I got, went back to the, the comment about stakeholder capitalism. You know, I thought it was very interesting in August last year, you know, so well be before the COVID crisis, that the B Business Roundtable updated their statement to corporate purpose 
to talk about stakeholders, you know, how they treat workers with fairness and dignity, providing benefits and training and ongoing education. Um, well, uh, then about how they treated their customers, you know, with uh, honesty and transparency, selling you know, goods and services as labelled around uh, supply chains and the responsibility in supply chains and to communities as well as to to the shareholders. Now, that actually, when you read back through it post-COVID, is actually quite a good framework for holding companies to account for their behaviours against that sort of framework. And I think you, you, it comes you know, comes back to the concept that shared prosperity, so good social uh, socialization of prosperity, is actually ultimately going to be very good for businesses. If we continue, if we have narrow pockets of wealth that's not shared more broadly across society, then ultimately, you know, when you you go to the, well, the furthest extremes of that having a limited number of billionaires is not actually going to be ultimately very good for your social, uh, for your, your business, uh, particularly if, you know, you're keeping spending going in the rest of the economy by slashing interest rates and making it heavily reliant on debt. So over the long term, you know, operating within environmental boundaries and having a well-functioning, prosperous society is actually good for business. And I, and I, I used the word before, uh, relevance. Uh, and I think maybe this is why, even in, in the US, that some of the largest built businesses are beginning to think about stakeholders because it's about how do they remain relevant in a rapidly changing world with you know not just you know, the technology and global trade, but social norms changing an awful lot. And I look at my, my children's generation and their attitude to work, their attitude to consumption and behaviors are very different to, you know, to, you know, to my generation. And I think that's part of the reason why we really need to get stakeholders. Now, that is a great way of then rethinking that social contract. You know, so Russo wrote about the social contract, you know, many hundreds of years ago, and it still remains important if you want to have a business that in the future is going to be resilient and relevant, is regulation could change, social norms can change very rapidly. Uh, we're seeing that with you know, the acceleration of uh, you know, alternative fuels, you know, renewables versus fossil fuels. You know, it wasn't that long ago where it seemed uh, unthinkable that Britain would be producing no electricity from coal, as we are today. Uh, but producing approximately 40% of our electricity from renewables. And I'm going to say we had the most progressive approach to, to green energy in Britain at times. So, you know, we are seeing these rapid changes. And I think the social dimension is one that could change very quickly. What do you think about the the regulation that needs to potentially evolve for this to become more open, right? You talk about stakeholder management, and I think many people would agree that Without good stakeholder management, your business is going to have trouble. But at the same time, there's this fiduciary duty that the company needs to put in place and the asset owner and the asset manager all needs to put in place. And how do they they try to map taking into consideration all the stakeholders and at the same time making sure they meet fiduciary duty and ask that question with, with the Department of Labor's decision with fiduciary duty as the primary concern? Yeah, and you know, at the end of the day, um, helping 
your members, if you're a pension scheme, you know, retire well, i.e. financially healthy is a, your prime objective. But you still want that to be in a healthy and vibrant world. You know, there's not a lot of point in retiring into a, a dystopian you know, wilderness uh, behind your barbed wire electrified uh, fences. Um, but I think, you know, for me, the way I, I look at being a, a sustainable investor is that it is still about achieving good fiduciary uh, outcomes. It's about having a lens for looking over the long term at the direction of travel of, uh, of the, the economy uh, and of businesses, which is why I always come back to it. It's about the business model that is really so important because that's the enactment of where civil society votes for where it wants to be. Now, I would say that over the short term, there can be a dynamic tension between financial returns, social consequences and environmental outcomes. But the best managed enterprises manage that that dynamic tension well and operate within those three three vectors. Um, You can stray outside of financial prudence for a while but that normally comes home to bite you as quite a few over-leveraged business models have discovered in the last six months. You can push your environmental boundaries for only so long before there's either a, a cost through fines or whether you know, legislation changes. And similarly with social, you can, you, can, you can only get away with pushing your workers so far uh, before there is a backlash. And even some of the gig economy you know, com- you know, companies that use zero hour contracts do find that within operating bands. Now, I think the, the big challenge is that with any businesses that build a moat that is so unassailable that it creates a monopoly, uh, and we have venerated moats, uh, and we need to think about that, is there, there is a mechanism of, uh, of law, whether it be around antitrust Monopoly is a concept that is normally frowned upon in, in most economies because ultimately it, it's a poor allocation of capital. Uh, it was an issue in the 1920s. You know, in America, they had to break up Standard Oil, which I believe controlled about 90% of the flow of, of oil. Um, so there are mechanisms and there are, uh, for cha- uh, tackling this. And I think that is going to be a decision at some point that we have on, on any industry or business where they are potentially exerting undue influence and control. At the moment, the political landscape has been largely to ignore that. And even in Europe, we've seen talk of building national champions. It took me almost back to the 1970s when I I heard that. But these things do normally swing back. And uh, and I'm beginning to see, you know, in in the US, I think we're talking it's mean about what your politics is that people on the left and right are beginning to worry about the lack of enforcement of antitrust and and if we begin to see that as we come out of the covid recovery that the dominance of in certain industries creates or stifles job creation i think that could begin to challenge some of these issues so as investors as asset owners this is going to be a topic that we need to keep a very close eye on. Will regulation swing from focusing on environmental to maybe more social norms? And if we have sticky unemployment, if we have difficult, slower recovery than anticipated, despite the $17 trillion of stimulus, then questions I'm sure are going to be asked um, you know, 
about the the role of uh, dominant industries. You know, history tells us that this happened. So maybe it's not a, a, an issue for now because the momentum and the performance and and the profits uh, push you the other way. But it is something to be aware of and to keep an eye on. Uh, over the yeah the unfolding of this decade. A final question, and we spent a lot of time on E and S, but but G and governance has always seen some very strong results from an empirical test of looking at poor governance has usually very negative returns financially. In this market with a lot of liquidity, governance seems to take a back seat because performance is doing quite well. I'm just curious on your thoughts around what's been happening in the governance space for for a lot of these businesses. No, you're quite right that you know governance is. If you had to rely on one area to look at it, it would always be governance. You know, um, irrespective of whether you use ESG, believe in ESG or, or not. You know, I think everybody believes in good management, or certainly believes that bad management can destroy shareholder value, uh, you know, pretty quickly. And it, it tends to be the worst companies in terms of governance that the, where the issue lies it's not so much um, further up the spectrum the difference between the very best and uh, the, the middling is not so so big uh, interestingly uh, i think some studies have shown that uh, governance in eos tech is inversely correlated with performance so you know because they're entrepreneurial fast-growing companies and people suspend their disbelief now i think the thing with governance is that it's always there as a factor. It just depends on when it becomes an issue. Uh, think of it another way as well, that good governance is a route to better performance on environmental and social factors. You need to have a good governance to be able to think about that more stakeholder approach to managing your business. So it does have wider implications, not just around the governance of the, the entity, but also to the enactment of other areas. It also works countries as well as companies. I think the issue with governance now is that I think it's one area where shareholders are they're almost all becoming activists. You know, so the level of engagement with company management, the greater level of uh, voting uh, by passive, you know, that has been a huge swing. You know, that the, you know, the passive industry historically were labelled as absentee landlords. They've moved on a long way from that now, which is great that, you know, they have a vote as well and they should exercise it for changing. So I think really where the governance has been really transformed is in this notion that they're all activists now and that, you know, shareholders are far, far more engaged in discussions around these issues. Certainly know that from our client base across institutions or financial intermediaries, they are much more engaged in it and they now want us to increasingly express their voice, their concerns to, to the companies uh, that we own on their behalf. Um, and so that's why I do think ultimately some of these social norms will, will change because our clients are a reflection of broader society and they're beginning to reflect many of these issues. Where it comes back to then is do governments and regulators enact it? So, for example, modern slavery is an issue that we, we hear a lot about and it's been raised right around the world because it remains a, a worrying problem in, 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 in the, even in the developed you know, so-called sophisticated world. Um, but 
nobody, as far as I'm aware, has been fined no corporate under the Modern Slavery Act. For example, in Britain, we have unlimited fines. So I think we begin. We will probably begin to see that um, it, it's not, we shouldn't just rely on in, uh, shareholders as being enforcement of these rules. We do need broader civil society to play their role as well, and that's where I think we are beginning to see the changes. That governance is being am, is amplifying uh, moves uh, more broadly in society. Mm-hmm. All right, Andrew, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.